We're going to continue on this week and next week is all we have left as we study the book of Esther. If you'll remember last week, a new edict was set in place by Mordecai and Esther to ensure that God's people would not face extinction. And as I said last week, because God cares and loves his covenant people, he can take the worst circumstances and reverse them for the good of his people. So in chapter 8, we have the details of that new edict that were communicated in verse 11. When it says, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate an armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. So think of chapter 8 as the bones and the structure of the plan. And what we're going to read today in chapter 9 is the details of how it played itself out. So let's begin reading Esther 9, beginning in verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself... The Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Paratha and Adalia and Aradatha and Parmashta and Erisai and Eridai and Vizatha. You know, if you just say those words confidently, people think you know what you're saying. <laughs> the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. 
but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. As soon as Mordecai's edict was sealed with the king's ring in chapter 8, it became inevitable that God's people were going to be spared death. And this morning, what we're going to learn is because God has set apart a people for himself, he will deliver them from their enemies, no matter how long it takes and no matter how dire the circumstances. So because God has set apart a people for himself, he will deliver them from their enemies no matter how long it takes and no matter how dire the circumstances might be. And this is demonstrated in this text through, number one, the defeat of the Persians, and number two, the authority and power of Mordecai and Esther. So the defeat of the Persians and the authority and power of Mordecai and Esther. Number one. The defeat of the Persians. The author explicitly communicates the idea that we have been talking about throughout this book of reversal. And he explicitly mentions it at this point. Up until now, as we have been pointing out these themes of reversal, we have just been seeing them implicitly in the text. But he actually says in the text that now the reverse has happened. He is ensuring us that he does not want us, his readers, to miss out on this very important theme. If you go back to Esther 3, verse 13, we're told that Haman's edict said that all the Jews would be destroyed, killed, and annihilated on the 13th day of the 12th month. And now, Mordecai's edict goes into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month. So that the Jews could now gather and defend themselves against their enemies. The great reversal is that Haman's edict was set in place to destroy the Jewish people. But Mordecai's edict was set in place to destroy the Jews' enemies. And we're told in verse 2 that the Jewish people gathered throughout the empire in all of the provinces to lay hands on the people who were seeking harm to them. We know from Esther 1 and a few other places that there were 127 provinces within Persia. And at the end of verse 2 it says, No one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Now this is actually a fulfillment That was given by Haman's wife herself earlier in Esther 6.13. If you remember, after Haman took Mordecai and paraded him throughout the city and everybody was praising him, Haman returns home to his wife and his friends, distraught and frustrated and discouraged. And this is what his wife tells him. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise man... 
and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So some of Haman's closest friends and his wife predicted long before Mordecai's edict was set in place that the Jewish God would not be overtaken. The fear of Yahweh had fallen on all of the people to the point in this text where even the Persian leaders and officials were turning against their own people to ensure that they would be victorious. The Persian governors and satraps and everyone who was in charge in Persia turned away from their own people and joined the Jewish people in killing their own people. They knew their only chance to survive was to team up with those that were on Yahweh's side. This shows both the reverence that the Persians had for Yahweh, and it also shows the lack of courage that the leadership within Persia was exercising, that they would abandon their own people just to avoid death. In verse 6, we're told that the Jews killed 500 men. And then in verses 7 through 10, each of Haman's sons was destroyed and mentioned by name. Now this is a significant moment in the narrative and it's not one that is explicit in the text. And we've talked about it two or three times. But remember that the reason the Jews and Haman... And Haman and Mordecai did not get along is because there is a feud that goes back much farther in the history of Israel. And that is a feud that existed between the Jews and the Amalekites. And it goes back to the time of King Saul. In 1 Samuel 15 verses 2 and 3, here's what God tells Saul to do. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. This is a reference to Exodus 17, which I'll read in a moment. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. But you know the story. Saul, however does not devote everything to destruction. And he spares the king of the Amalekites, Agag. And he also spares the best sheep, the best oxen, the best calves, and the best lambs. And this ultimately is the reason why Saul is removed from his position as king. In fact, the last phrase in 1 Samuel 15 says this, And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This background information, the feud between the Jews and the Amalekites, is partly why Haman sought to destroy the Jewish people. Because what do we learn about Haman's genealogy? That he is actually a relative of King Agag. He has a lineage within the people of the Amalekites. But through Mordecai's edict, the Jewish people can now do to Haman and to Haman's sons what God had told Moses to do 
all the way back in Exodus 17, which is this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now, why does all of this matter here in Esther chapter 9? If you look in the Hebrew Bible in Esther 9, you will find the ten sons of Haman set apart from the rest of the text. And I took a picture of it so you can see it. If you were to open up a Hebrew Bible, you would see that about three-quarters of the way down, that text back and forth suddenly becomes spaced out. Each individual son of Haman is highlighted and emphasized in a way that you hardly ever see anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. The only other time this happens is in the book of Joshua, chapter 12, when the kings of Canaan are mentioned in this very same fashion. So why, here in Esther 9, would they separate and organize the sons of Haman this way? And the answer is because the author of Esther wants you to notice that something special is happening in this text. Throughout the Old Testament, there are tons of people that are killed. Tons of people that are killed through holy war. But the separation of these ten names communicates that no one will be left to carry on the legacy of Haman, which is traced all the way back to the Amalekites. The Jews of Persia who lived in exile finally obeyed Yahweh in a way that King Saul was unable to do. And we also find out that this is holy war because three times in verses 1 through 19 of this chapter you see the phrase and they did not take the plunder. It's in verse 10, it's in verse 15, and it's in verse 16. The reason we know that plundering was not allowed during holy war is because in Joshua 6, when the Israelites defeat Jericho, they were supposed to devote everything to the Lord. But we know that there was one, Achan, who went into Jericho took a robe, took silver and gold that was supposed to be destroyed and kept it for himself. So if you want to read that story in Joshua 7, this led to Israel being defeated by Ai. And it was all because Achan did not devote fully everything God commanded his people to devote to destruction in the midst of holy war. Now we talked a lot about holy war last week. And we we're very clear to say that we do not live under that era anymore. There is no holy war for me and you as brothers and sisters in Christ. We do not exercise God's judgment in the way that the Israelites often exercise the judgment of God in the Old Testament. Instead, we live in an era of God's grace. Where he is allowing the gospel to be sent forth to all corners of the earth, so that people can be made aware of God's judgment and turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ. But here's the significance of why all of this stuff with Haman being an Agagite and the Amalekites and Saul and Exodus 17, here's why all of this matters. The exodus out of Egypt happened in the 1400s B.C., 
The story of Esther is taking place around 480 to 470 B.C. So if you're doing the math, that's almost 100 years that have passed before the Jewish people finally accomplished what God told them to do in Exodus 17. When he said, I'm going to wipe out the Amalekites. 1,000 years have passed before God was faithful to finally fulfill that promise. Now, in addition, King Saul's reign, which is around the 11th century B.C., also shows us that it was roughly 600 years past between Saul disobeying God's command and the Jews of Persia finally following through to eliminate the Amalekites. So from Exodus to Esther, a thousand years. From King Saul to Esther, roughly 600 years. God is always faithful to fulfill his promises. Even if it takes between 600 and 1,000 years, what he says he is going to do in his word, he is going to do. If you are in Christ today, know that God has an abundance of promises for you. To strengthen you and protect you. That's Isaiah 41.10. To forgive you of your sins, 1 John 1.9. To take care of all your needs, Philippians 4.19. Freedom from punishment and the power of sin. That's Colossians 2.13-15 that we just read this morning. Freedom from condemnation. That's Romans 8.1. He promises to be close to the brokenhearted, Psalm 34.18. I could go on and on for the rest of the sermon showing you that God is faithful to keep his promises. And through the defeat of Haman and the execution of Haman's ten sons, we are seeing that God's promises, which he set in place literally a thousand years before, finally come true. So, when you're discouraged and you're prone to think, That our God is not faithful to keep his promises. Remember that if it took a thousand years to eliminate any trace of the Amalekites, then surely we can trust that God will never forget us when we doubt his promises. In the text we read that if you add up the 500 in Susa, the 300 the second day in Susa, and the 75,000 in the other provinces, then the Jewish people destroyed 75,800 of their Persian enemies. Now this is probably just more of a round number. It might have been much more than that. But the reality is there's no way that the Jewish people who are in exile in Persia would have had the manpower, the expertise, the equipment, or the strength to kill their enemies unless Yahweh was with them. Unless, even in their exile, God never abandoned his chosen people. So God does care about us. He has set a people apart for himself. 
and he will deliver us from our enemies, no matter how long it takes and no matter how dire the circumstances might be. He does it through the defeat of the Persians, but he also does it through the power and the authority of Mordecai and Esther. Think back to the beginning of the narrative, many, many months ago, as we've worked our way through this text. Esther was being brought up by her cousin Mordecai because she had no father or mother. Her status was basically that of orphan. The only reason she is selected to go before the king is because she's attractive. It is not because she has any prominence or position within the empire. In the same way in Esther 2, when Mordecai overheard the plan about the king getting assassinated, the king forgets to honor Mordecai for years It's not that Mordecai had anything special to bring before the king. So neither Esther or Mordecai, at the beginning of the story, have the type of power and authority that we read about here in Esther chapter 9. Look at verse 4 in chapter 9. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Mordecai has now inherited all the fame and all of the power that Haman had before the king earlier in the story. In fact, if you look back to Esther 3 verse 1, it says, after these things, Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with them. Now, this is true of Mordecai. This is another reversal of fortune. It's Mordecai who is now the king's trusted advisor. But Esther also has a new level of authority and power as well. Look at verse 12. The king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. Why did the king give Esther an opportunity to ask for another request? We don't have anything in the text that indicates that Esther needed another request to be fulfilled. Why would the king do that? Because now Esther has power. She has authority. She doesn't even ask him for a second day for the Jews to go into Susa until he offers it. And then, of course, they go on to hang the ten sons of Haman. Esther requesting this second day in Susa was to ensure that the Jewish people would be faithful to fully execute God's judgment of holy war on the Amalekites. Here's what we discover here in chapter 9. While the king is still formally in charge of Persia, Esther is functionally in charge of Persia. Through all of the events of Esther's life, in God's providence without Yahweh's name ever being mentioned in the book, he uses Esther as one of his instruments to take full functional control of the nation of Persia. Haman was not ultimately in charge of Persia. 
Ahasuerus was not ultimately in charge of Persia. But you know what? Neither was Mordecai. Neither was Esther. Do you know who was in charge of Persia from Esther 1 all the way to the end? Yahweh. Every step of the way, God is the true king of Persia. You know who the true king of Babylon was? It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. It was God. He was the true king of Babylon. You know who the true king of Israel was? It wasn't Saul. It wasn't David. It wasn't Solomon. It was Yahweh. God is king over the entire universe. There is no earthly ruler that does anything without God allowing it to happen. He is sovereign over every single nation on this planet. In the year 2023, as it was in the day of Esther. Do not fear, brothers and sisters, any earthly ruler. God is on his throne. And in his providence, he is orchestrating all things for the good of his chosen and holy people. Even if you have to wait for his promises for your entire life. When you die and you are before Jesus, that promise has then been fulfilled. The chapter concludes with the Jews in Susa and the Jews in the provinces feasting with gladness and joy on two separate days. The 15th day of those in Susa and the 14th day for those in the provinces. And these celebrations inaugurate a festival that we will study next week known as the Feast of Purim. The saving of God's people and the defeat of the Persians is definitely worth a celebration. And now as we come almost to the end of this book, we leave with this truth. The great reversal is now fully complete. The Jews have gained mastery over their enemies. And 75,800, perhaps many more Persians were killed. God's people win. God provided even for his children that were in exile, who chose to remain in exile even after they could have gone back to Jerusalem. Christians, the great reversal in your life is complete. And it was complete many, many years ago on the cross at Calvary. We were once enslaved to our sin. It had mastery over us. We were at enmity with God, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have received victory over sin, and we are freed from its power. Romans chapter 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In the same way that Esther asked the king for Haman and his sons to be hung from the gallows to fully accomplish the holy war that King Saul and previous generations of Jews were not able to complete. God sent his son to live the perfect life and hang from a wooden cross to fully accomplish the holy war against sin and death. This is the gospel. 
The Jewish people can feast and rejoice with gladness because their enemy has been defeated. Can you say the same thing today? Can you feast with joy and gladness knowing that you are not in bondage to sin? That Satan does not have power over you? Lost people in the room, I urge you, walk in the freedom That is only found in Christ Jesus. He is the one who can give you victory over sin and death. He is the greater, more faithful, more powerful, perfect Esther who lived the life that we were incapable of living and died the death that we deserve. Esther and Mordecai point you to Jesus. That is what the whole book of Esther is all about. Let's pray. Father, you love your people. You demonstrate that in this book. That because you are faithful to your people, no matter what we might experience, no matter how terrible the circumstances, you will deliver us from our enemies. And you did so through sending your son Jesus to die the death that we deserve. So all that are in Christ today, we walk in victory knowing that you have given us through your spirit freedom from the punishment and power of sin. So we abide in you as we navigate the battle against the flesh. If there's anyone here today who does not know the good news of the gospel, God, I pray that gospel seeds have been planted. And now we as a church pray that you would water those seeds and that they would bear fruit. We believe that it is your word that changes hearts. So move in our hearts today through the proclamation of your word. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.